Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there were over one million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fun hunting for your brilliant brunch, Riesling. And sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Denise Ristari, and this is Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, and bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action, and we're inviting you to join us every Wednesday in my New York City apartment, where we are proudly sponsored by the Business Platinum Card from American Express. However you move your business forward with Business Platinum, it's not about where you are, it's about where you want to take your business business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum Card, backed by the service and security of American Express. And today at the table with me is Lara Zaro, who has just gotten off of a train and to make it here today. So I really appreciate that, Lara, to coming into the city to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. So it's thank totally you. worth it well, to join this you. wonderful roster of people you've had talking about their mentoring moments. Well, it's always fun, and it'll get more fun today. So Laura is the host of the Gracie Award-winning Women at Work on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. It's a show that I love because it's about how women join, stay, succeed, and lead, all of my favorite words, in the workplace. And Laura, I just love your show, as you know, and especially because I was a guest on your show, which makes me love it even more. So Laura works at the intersection of the creative and practical, and these days she's doing a lot of it at Wharton. She was a member of Wharton's Innovation Group. She built Wharton's Lifelong Learning Program, and she's now leading the development of Wharton's People Analytics Initiative, which is a really hot topic these days. So she brings new ideas to life in organizations and established organizations, which, as we all know, I used to work in one of those organizations, is like getting a ship. (laughs) It ain't so easy, honey. And she's always advancing the work of people who are doing things to improve the world which is near and dear to my heart. And Laura, every time we talk or every time we meet, I walk away feeling so inspired, and I really mean this, and I think differently. I think deeper and I think differently because you really do bring this creative with this practical to me in the way I'm thinking. It's not, it it really makes me think deeper. And that I I so appreciate and I love it. And that's what I want to do for our listeners today is to give them a little dose of Laura (laughs) so that you all can appreciate what I get out of every time we get off the phone or every time we meet. So I'm going to jump right in and do my mentoring moment. So this mentoring moment is about my dad. I talk about my mom a lot. But the other day I was telling the story to a friend and she was like, Thank you for sharing this story with me. And so this morning in the shower, where I have most of my ideas before a podcast, it came to me and I thought, you know, I'm going to share it and hopefully this will have as much meaning for others as it did for my friend Joan. So my dad 
was the father who did everything for his family, right? He worked to make sure. I mean, he was that that responsible father who never missed a day of work, who would work two jobs. He's Italian. His parents came from Italy. And so Western Pennsylvania, that whole work ethic of you'd never miss a day of work no matter what. And that's what you do. And I think back to when we would be having dinner Whatever food was there, like the best food on the table, he would always make sure my mother, my brother, and me had it before he did. And if it was something that one of us loved, he would always make sure that we got that first. And then he would sometimes eat like our leftovers. So nobody was hungry in our family, but he always took that position of, you all have what you have, and I'll take what else is there. So... It was his like 73rd, 74th birthday. I can't remember the exact year, but I asked him what he wanted for his birthday. And he said, you know, honey, I want a white sports jacket. And I thought, well, that's kind of a strange thing to want, right? You're 73, 74. And so I was like, sure. I mean, I asked him what he wanted and I said, but daddy, why? And he said, when I was younger, I had a white sports jacket. And I used to have like a different step in my walk when I would put on my white sports jacket and I would take your mother dancing and I would be wearing my white sports jacket. And that's what I want. So we go shopping and I will never forget this day. We go into Lord and Taylor and we look at the rack of his size and there is one white sports jacket of all the others of the browns and the grays and the pinstripes and the blacks there's one white sports jacket and he tries it on and it just fits him perfectly like no no alterations which the odds of that happening right are always slim i mean even like the sleeves everything was just like made for him so but when he put that sports jacket on the magic that happened the look in his eye the smile his whole energy Everything about him changed. And so I said, so daddy, what are you thinking about? He said, I'm thinking about when I was a young man, but more importantly, I'm thinking about taking your mother dancing now in my white sports jacket the way we used to when we were younger. It would have been really easy to say, a white sports jacket, really? I mean, you're 73 years old and you're going to look a little ridiculous in a white sports jacket unless you're dealing drugs that I don't know about. (laughs) But I'm going to assume you're not, but you're going to look a little ridiculous in it. But I didn't. It was like this was for him. But by doing that for him, that story for me brings me so much joy and it makes my heart happy. And my dad died a few days after 9-11. He was 82. And to this day, when I think about him, I see that picture of him in that white sports jacket. So that is my story for everyone. I've told stories about my mom and her pink dress and her red shoes. And now this is my dad in his white sports jacket. And somehow we're going to find a theme in all, <laughs> all of this in my parents and their clothing. I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> somehow there's a theme here, but I'm not sure I've discovered it yet. But that is the the story of my mentoring moment for the day. So have you ever had those or anything that you're thinking of as I'm telling this? wow. Well, first, I'm touched by the story on a couple of different levels. One is that you heard your dad without judgment and that so often we look like, what do you want a white sports jacket for? And I I thought that at first, right? right? But I got over because I was like, well, I asked him what he wanted. So I I, I asked. With our spouses or our colleagues, there's something that seems important to somebody and we can't see why. And we don't understand. It's like a talisman. Right. Or it's a key to something. It unlocks something that's more important to them. It's a symbol of something. And for him, it wasn't just about the fun of dancing. 
And your story wasn't just about the fun of dancing. There was this generosity of spirit that permeated the whole thing that for him, it was something he did with your mom. Right. And so it was also about sharing that joy, that youthfulness, that energy. And for what you describe as a man who worked two jobs, ate the leftovers of everyone else, going dancing feels decadent. Right. (laughs) My new word for the year is decadence. (laughs) And it conjures all of that. But it's also a reminder to me of when are those times and those things where we don't understand why something's important to somebody and we don't remember to listen deeply enough or trust what we don't know. Right. Or just go with it, right. And say, it doesn't matter if I don't understand. And I think a lot of the work you do too, and diversity and understanding people. Mm -hmm. I remember one day saying to my dad years ago, I said, somebody's in left field. And my dad said, no, honey, they're not in left field. They're not in your field. But that's that, good. But that doesn't mean their field's not as good as your field. So don't yes. ever think that, that your field's the only field, but they're not in your field. Now you have to figure out who has, what field you want to be in, right? <laughs> right. So he wasn't saying, yeah, your field's so spectacular and they're not left. They're just in a different field. It was like, and that makes you think sometimes it's like, you know, I don't have all the answers and people are different. Yes. And if I listen, I can learn. Yes. It was when I was doing, when we were starting Lifelong Learning, Carl Ulrich, who's the vice dean of entrepreneurship and innovation at Wharton, who actually wrote the book on product design, um, taught me how to do a needs analysis. And it was all about listening to people's stories. And the way that he introduced me to it, we um, had been given a resource that we were able to share with our alumni. And he cautioned me. He said, before you just take that and go run with how to deploy it, why don't you check and make sure they want it? That's always a good step. Yes. <laughs> and so start. in teaching me how to do a needs analysis, the thing I had to let go of was how do you ask questions that couldn't be answered on a survey, which is really how do you just get the prompt to listen to someone's story and see what it is you're hearing that you didn't expect to hear. So that the real challenge isn't in getting them to talk. It's in removing your own preconceived notions while you're listening to them. And it was in the process of doing that that I started to hear story after story that made me tune into the fact that women were having a different experience than men in the workplace in ways that I didn't expect. I thought the things that they were talking about had been solved 40 years ago because I had the benefit of working in an arts community where gender issues presented themselves very differently. And it was through this process of learning to listen and say, tell me more, tell me why, what else is there, that I started to uncover um, a pattern of realities among a group of people that I wouldn't have seen otherwise if I had just gone in and don't you want my thing that I'm trying to make available to you. Well, does that kind of go back, and maybe it doesn't, but does it go back to like thinking about the iPhone? If we would have asked people, <laughs> yes, do you want what do you want? Nobody would have said, I want to walk around with a device that does this, 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 because you wouldn't, you can't imagine, you can't it. conceive of it, right? But if you listen to people, yes, and you think about what's possible, right, and then um, see how people respond to what's possible, you're likely to produce something that's meaningful and useful. It also helped me understand something that lots of artists and designers. I watched kind of cohorts of them do over and over again, where people make something that's part of them and they love it. And it's like they gave birth to a child and there's a creative process that they went through to generate it. And they 
need someone else to want it because that's how they're making their living or they want you to understand this thing they made with so much love yet at the same time you may not have a need for that thing and then marketers come in and try and say well let's figure out how to sell this thing or the same creator tries to sell their thing that they already love and instead if we start with what's the problem that we need to solve what's the need that's not being met What's possible here that we haven't considered, we're more likely to create something of mutual use. Yes. You know, I was just writing a post. I spent hours and hours writing it and I was going down a track of health and nutrition because in this post was information that was really valuable to me that I thought this is great and the world needs to know. But then when I read it, I thought, I'm not so sure that's what the readers that read Mentoring Moments want. <laughs> And it was more important to me than it was to them. And I had to take all those hours of work and just say, I'm not using it. And that's hard, right? So, And that didn't even come from my heart, like a creative thing <laughs> right. that I'm making. It's hard to say, I did this and I need to shove, I need to push it aside. Maybe one day it'll come back. Yes. Before we get into Laura's mentoring moment, I want to give a shout out to the business platinum card from American Express. As an entrepreneur, the card I carry is the Business Platinum Card from American Express. That's because business can be done from anywhere, in the palm of your hand and at the source. However you move your business forward with Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum Card. Backed by the service and security of American Express. They always told Will he was too short to play basketball, but Will never listened. Will let his work ethic do the talking for him, always in the gym, always running drills. Will knew where there was a will, there was a way, and he was Will. But then, after his second child was born, he realized the pros were all way better than him, so Will gave up and buried his high tops in a tearful ceremony. But one day, he heard that Geico could save him money on car insurance, so he switched and saved a bunch, which was awesome. Here at Podcast One, we love hearing from you. We read every tweet and comment you send our way. So don't miss your chance to take our summer listener survey. Just go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Or go to podcastone.com slash mysurvey. It only takes a few minutes, and it gives you the opportunity to make a direct impact on your favorite shows. Tell us how you really feel so we can get to know you better. We value your thoughts and participation. So check out the survey at podcastone.com slash mysurvey. Or click on the survey banner on podcast one.com this is mentoring moments with denise rastari so now i want to hear your mentoring <laughs> <laughs> well that actually um is a great lead into it and i want to start by saying when you asked me the question first you know what are the meaningful mentoring moments that you had i went back and forth between was i not mentorable and then really trying to think more deeply about what were the moments that really taught me something I wouldn't have learned otherwise. And the one that kept coming back to me happened in art school with a professor of mine who to this day I still adore. And that's really important to note because what she put me through, you might think I would never have <laughs> forgiven her. Um, we were in a rigorous Swiss design program that really focused on the iterative process, doing things over and over again, really precise attention to detail, um, accepting criticism almost on an hourly basis. So you make something, you get feedback, you make it again, you do more, you change it, and you keep getting input with this idea that you're almost cultivating something into being and into refinement until it looks like that's how it should have always looked. 
because you just hit that sweet spot of what's right, kind of like your apartment here. Um, and how old were you? Uh, I, I was 18 to 21 at the time, and this I was about 20 when the story I'm going to tell you happened. And I had earned a place in an elective drawing class. And I was very proud of this because it meant that, you know, I had mastered the basic level of skill. I was ready to go and explore under the tutelage of this rigorous Swiss instructor, little tiny woman, ferocious big spirit, and felt so encouraged and supported by her. And I had done all of the um, technique building work that we had to do in the beginning of the semester. And I was set loose on a series of self-portraits um, where I was supposed to really find, in a way, make a symbol of myself because this is a graphic design program. And how do we use painting and drawing and these other forms of expression to find a new way of making a visual statement? I felt loved, supported, respected, capable. I was ready to rock and roll. And um, normally she would come around the room and we'd all be working about 20 of us in a big open space, looking at each other's work. And she'd give us criticism, change this, change that. Sometimes pick up a pencil and change something on our page. And this time, she just kept looking at me and nodding, looking at me and nodding. And she didn't say one word to me. I'm like, yeah, uh, this is great. She never just lets me go. And she let me go and let me go. And then I thought, oh, I've done this. I'm kind of there. And she came up to me. She goes, are you done? I said, yeah. She goes, okay, move over for a minute. And she stands at my easel, which, you know, towers over her because she's a little tiny woman. And she picks up a three-inch wide paintbrush squirts out a big dollop of white paint on my palette and paints over the entire thing. I wish everyone could see your eyes. And <laughs> turns to me and says, now that that's out of your system, do it again. And walks away. I, I, I couldn't believe what it, I didn't know how to process this. I was breathless. I was devastated. I thought I had made this exceptional thing and just dismissed it right there. So I really, I think the only rational thing to do was to leave the room, cry in the bathroom, get, like process that, okay, I am not happy about what just happened, but I have no choice but to go back in and do it again. And now that I'm telling you the story, I realize I did have a choice. I could have walked away, but you don't do that there. And that's not what we were about. And so I went back in and I trusted Chris and I pulled it together to start over again. And as I was doing this over again from scratch, still kind of buzzing, vibrating from the awfulness of having what I had made erased. Something just started to come out of me. And all of a sudden, it's beautiful and it's working. And she comes over to me with this big ear to ear grin. Now, mind you, this little ferocious person not grinning that often. And patted me on the shoulder. And I had I'd done it. I had nailed it. And I realized that and it took me a long time to process this and make sense out of it, that letting go of it without walking away entirely, coming back and trying again, was as important as the thing I was trying to make. Because while I made this piece really was beautiful. I hung it over my bed for, I don't know, 15 it's years. It's still after. there. <laughs> <laughs> You're never letting go of it. It's like, it's here forever. It's still in my house. I have to admit. It's, it's going to be passed down through the ages. It was this 
beautiful example to me, though, of when part of learning and part of succeeding is letting go of something, but being brave enough to try again and to walk back into the room where you failed or you even if you didn't fail, where you felt like you failed and picking up the paintbrush or the pencil and starting over again. There's so much in your story. Like, <laughs> I, first of all, congratulations for going back. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not so sure I would have been able to. So I think that's hard, especially when you're that age and everybody else is being able to see what's going on. So all your peers are watching this and to know that you've got to go back in there and start from scratch. But where did you find that ability to say, did not be so devastated that you couldn't go paint again. I mean, because I, I think that can happen, right? Yes. You can be like so knocked off your game that you just can't, you that, get that paralyzed. You can't face it. It was a skill and a perspective that was developed in art school. And it's something that I don't think art school education gets enough credit for. That in the formal training of makers, part of what you have to accept is a process of failing regularly stepping up, trying, doing it over again, taking criticism. Granted, there are times where that is more painful than other times. And whether it's in visual or performing arts, being committed enough to the process of learning how to be an effective maker, being committed enough to an outstanding product means that you take what happens along the way because it's part of learning to grow. The other thing that's critical to internalizing this as a way of being is that we're all going through it together. And that, the, in fact, one of the first things you learn when you go to art school is how to participate in a critique. I think it's something that businesses could really learn from, where every student has a responsibility to put their work on the wall. Every student has the responsibility then of presenting their work and commenting on one another's work. And not unlike the things our parents try and teach us. Say something nice first. Right. Really see what's good in it. Look for the positive qualities. Then try and understand it. What's the maker trying to create? How could it be improved? This is done with the guidance of an instructor, highly capable artists and teachers, who are then helping you learn, A, how to express your ideas and ideas about visual things. But quite importantly, and something that applies outside of art making, is how do you pay attention to what the intent is and try and help it along? And we all went through that together. So we all gave each other praise, gave each other criticism, and received it in front of each other. So I knew that while I was embarrassed and a little ashamed, it, it was painful in front of them, I also knew that they had had their moments like that too. Did you ever think, why couldn't she have just said, use a little more red? <laughs> versus like taking the white paint. <laughs> what would happen if she would have said, you know, Laura, just use a little more red over here. It'll be better. Actually, it was probably decades later right? that I thought about that. What I did was I put those questions of why didn't she do X aside so that I could get back to work. Yeah, that's, that is a great learn. I mean, that in itself is a huge life lesson. And then when I went back to work, I produced something so great that we just reveled in, yes, I got there. 
And um, she and I had a wonderful collaboration afterwards in then how to present it and um, develop it even further. So it became this wonderful partnering that emerged out of this. So that's the thing that lingered in my mind. And it wasn't until years later, and to some degree when you and I started talking about these ideas, that I really thought about why didn't she do that? And it was part of her brilliance. She cultivated us. She taught us um, through her pattern of intervention and distance about how to guide our own image making. And there was something brilliant in how she knew that thing that I had made, not to fuss over it. It wasn't going to get better with the fussing. (laughs) The red paint wasn't going to help it. Right. And interestingly, she, unlike our regular process where you would do a sketch and then you would do another sketch, you document every stage of your process. It was part of demonstrating to your professors what your thought process was and also for you to see how an idea could progress. So what was radical here in that context was that she erased the step before. She didn't want me to look back at it and pull from it. That's why she painted over it. It wasn't to punish me. It was to free me from it so that I had an idea of what I was trying to do. I had, you know, not to get too art speaking, but there was a way I was making marks and there was a way I was mixing paint and there was a way I was mixing drawing and painting that clearly was working, but she didn't want me to copy something or have a reference point. Just start again. And so how do you translate that into your business world or what advice do you have for the women who are listening and the men who are listening? <laughs> it's that, um, there are two different arenas where I think it applies. One is the things that feel like a performance actually that we do at work. When we give a talk, when we chair a meeting, um, conduct an interview, whatever things that you do that are time dependent, they happen in a finite amount of time. You can't torture yourself after it's done. And yes, sometimes I listen to my own radio shows and go back and think, hmm, I wish that had been different. I wish that had been different. You can't always do the same one again. Right. You can learn from it and say, oh, I want to work on that skill or that way of presenting information. So part of it is recognizing that you can learn from what you did, but don't belabor over it. I think where it's more um, particularly relevant in our process of making things and producing things at work is when we're designing solutions and inventing new systems, websites, um, products that we can develop something and find that it's not working. And you get around the table with a group of people, let's say a system for registering for something or buying something online. And everybody's built this website for months and everybody's negotiated what's there what does it look like how's it going to function whose needs are met and the developers have all produced this and it's up and running and it's not working well it's not intuitive i've been there i've been there and it's just not working well and everybody will fuss over well can't we change this and can't we change that at a certain point it really is easier to start again and if it's just the coding that's wrong yes you could change the coding And some people might say, well, while we're changing the coding, change X, Y, and Z. The bigger issue is when it's not working, put it aside. Think about what it should be from scratch. Free yourself from the old decisions. And does that work in your actual job? Like say you're not happy with your job, like Mm -hmm. it's not working, right? (laughs) So That's a good question. Um, Yeah, 
I, I think it does apply that if you step back and you say, not, I'm unhappy about X, Y, and Z, and instead say, what am I trying to do here? What am I trying to accomplish? What's the best use of time? What's the best use of me? You're going to get to a better solution than if you just navel gaze and over-examine things that are a byproduct of effort and time that you can't go back and change. I remember you were saying to me one day, you were making an analogy of, it's like having wearing putting on a skirt that doesn't fit. Yes. Right? And yes. then what do we do? We work everything else around that skirt that doesn't fit. We put on, we find a sweater to accommodate the skirt. We find the shoes to accommodate the skirt. Yes. Versus just saying, I'm not going to wear that skirt. Exactly. The skirt's right. out of right. here. Right. The skirt's out of here, right? Right. Or to share what may be the best piece of advice I can offer that came from my mother is always start with your shoes. Well, that's a great piece of advice. And because? Because let's say you start with the fabulous pink dress and then you discover that it's raining. Out. I agree. I agree. And you put the raincoat on. Oh, it's the shoes and the, and the coat. coat. And it's I'm raining and you wanted to wear suede sandals. Well, you can't wear suede sandals right. in the rain. So what are you going to do? Put on sneakers and carry your sandals in the bag? No, we're too grown up for that. Right. Another piece I of agree. advice. I agree. I'm done with that. I've, I've said this on the <laughs> podcast. I am done with that. Another piece of advice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm done with carrying my shoes. Exactly. So start with the thing that connects you to the world that is going to keep you comfortable, move you forward, and will anchor you. Right. Then dress to match your shoes. And while you're at it, do you need a coat? Pick the coat first right. and make sure that the dress isn't hanging out of the hem of the coat, right. that it's right for the weather. But it's that same idea. And it's, you may just show up in places with shoes and a coat because you may not have the outfit to wear under it. But, but if it's a great right, coat, really, you can make it work. Somehow we'll make it work. But it's really about what are our building blocks? Right. What, are, what are our organizing principles? What are the things that are most important here? And instead of what are we emotionally attached to or amused by? And we can then build a system that makes sense, whether it's a career, a job, a website, a conversation that's built around the things that matter most, that are our drivers of success, and then bring in the joy. Yes. Then accessorize and bring in great jewelry that matches everything, everything else. Right. <laughs> so, you know, speaking of on the clothing, my friend, uh, I've talked about her, Sharon. She owns a store. She owns two stores here in New York called Pashut. And I love her clothes. Well, we were talking the other day and she was saying that we were talking about how to organize our closet. And so she moved into a new place. Her, her closet is really small, but a closet in the other part of her house is bigger so she can move everything over there. But her closet that she goes to every day is really tiny. So she really had to edit it down. And she said, I feel so much freer because right now I have the things that I, I love. It's not my emotional attachment, which is but maybe think about that because yes. she said the same exact word. She said, there are so many things that have been sitting in my closet that I am emotionally attached to. I'm yes. not giving them away. I just move them out of my sight. Right. And I think that's a great lesson in life. It's like we become so, it's like we want them near us, but they're not useful in our life right now. Exactly. So like her mother-in-law just passed away a few weeks ago and her mother-in-law had fabulous, fabulous clothes. And, and so she was saying that she wants to keep them all for many reasons, for the honor. She loved her mother-in-law and also they're just great clothes. 
but they're not for her right now, this minute. She doesn't mm-hmm. want to wear them right now. So she was like, it was so freeing to move them. And I thought about that in life, right? It's just freeing to move those thoughts out. And, yes. we, and even when we're looking at our day-to-day work, how we get into the, I have this big project that's really important. And then I have all these other things. Oh, and then there's, ping, there's somebody's pinging me. And then there's my face. This is going on. Oh, I told somebody I would post that picture on Instagram. By the time we get to the most important, our mind is drained. Our brain is drained from where we're most effective. It, it's taking energy and space away from us. I also think it applies to our career paths. I know that personally, as I went from what seemed like a very logical career path of leadership of art schools into an innovation group at Wharton and now running Wharton People Analytics, the thing that I had to let go of that I decided to categorize as an emotional attachment, other people may say I'm crazy, is title. And how does your progression look to other people? And that what matters to me, at least, is where am I growing? Where am I doing meaningful work? And what's the role that's going to put me in meaningful work where I can make a unique impact? Because never in my whole life starting out, you know, having my most impactful mentoring moment be in a painting class, would you think I'd be working at Wharton? But it was enabled by learning a creative process and then being open to letting go of identity and getting much closer to what is it that matters? What are our building blocks? What are we trying to shape a career around? And for me, the opportunity to go into an environment, say, what's the idea that you want to make real? And how can we do that in a meaningful way? How can I take that idea and make it bigger, more effective, more impactful? That's more exciting to me than continuing to lead a ship that's already going in the right direction. Because you were dean. Mm -hmm. Well, I was associate provost at the University of the Arts. Right. And then went and became the dean at the Lyme Academy College of Fine Arts, an excellent fine arts college. And I was the chief academic officer there. And when I went in and was able to do a strategic plan and um, do a big reaccreditation report and bring in technology and help them grow to the next phase. I found it really exciting. Um, it's a place that's still dear to my heart, yet I wasn't going to keep growing the same way. And at the same time, a fabulous friend of mine had said, there's a thing here at Wharton, and I think you should consider it. And you said, as I, I, I was talking yesterday, and I was like, every time an opportunity came, comes in front of me, I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hell yeah, count me and I'll be there. Well, this one for me was hard because it was so different than where I had been. And I had only thought of myself in this role of leading art schools. And instead, the question was, Wharton was looking for somebody at the time to come and join the innovation group, and it was who could work across institutional boundaries, who could do it without being in a position of authority, who could uh, think creatively and bring something different to the conversation, yet understood education and organizations. It's a very weird skill set that happened to be just mine. And I got the enormous honor and good fortune of coming to work with that team. Don Huseman, Carl Ulrich, Brendan Rodriguez, brilliant, brilliant, kind, generous men who taught me a different way of collaborating and of being creative in an applied context that built on all of the kind of innovation work that I had done before, but I didn't know to call innovation work. And so it was 
the opportunity of a lifetime. And then it was in the innovation group that Sirius XM came to us and said, let's build a radio station. The dean asked the innovation group to build it. And so I started working with Brandon, who was lead on the project, and Carl to say, how do we build a radio station from scratch? What should the programming look like? And as another huge life lesson was the way that I wound up with the show. And I owe Carl and Brandon all the credit. And a life lesson in? Um, whether or not you take the opportunity that's put in front of you and what you do with your own fear. So having grown up as professionally grown up as an administrator in college and university settings, I have an enormous respect for the faculty and the uniquely important role they play in in an organization of higher ed. They are the institution and there's a difference between faculty and staff that I deeply respect. So as we were starting to shape the radio show, what what content would we have? Who would be the hosts? How would the programming go? There was an open call for people who were interested in hosting. And Brandon and Carl kept saying to me, you haven't submitted an idea. It's like, but I'm staff. You haven't submitted an idea, but I'm staff. Brandon pulled me aside. Come on, don't you want to do this? I was like, I'm staff. Don't you realize I shouldn't be doing this? Now I look back and I think, moron. <laughs> Didn't we you get realize- in our own ways sometimes, so often, right? The thoughts in our heads. Yes, and that there was this door that was wide open to me, but my sense of propriety, which was mine, not theirs, was getting in my own way. And then... As the roster of programs were taking shape, they basically turned to me and said, we need programming on women and business, and you are the person to do this. So it was twofold. One was that, did I jump over that boundary of staff to faculty and couldn't believe that these people I respected so much were like, no, 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 you, you can do this. But it was also acknowledging and leveraging work I had done in that needs analysis of trying to figure out what did mature business people and our alumni need in order to keep learning and growing. And that in the process of listening to their stories, I had started learning about the challenges that women were facing in the workplace and started to write white papers on it and do research on it and conduct more interviews on it. And I was in a painting class 30 years ago. I didn't think that um, diversity and inclusion in the workforce would be this driving passion that it's become, but they saw it before I did. And they had respect for the work that I was doing that I didn't even realize was worthy. And then these two things came together and they said, do this. So it was their foresight, their encouragement, their patience with me, because other people would have said, I've put a ripe opportunity in front of you. You've dismissed it. I'm moving on. But instead they didn't. And I'm enormously grateful for the way that they believed in me. And then there was Patty Hall, my producer for the radio show, who took me under her wing and said, okay, you haven't done this before, but we're going to do it together. And in the process, I got to bring all those things I'd learned in art school about trying again, about making, about learning what you learn from your mistakes, getting criticism, learning when to let go, to hopefully connect with people and tell stories that can inspire other people. And I think sometimes when we have that mission, when we know what we're trying to accomplish, it makes the other pieces not as important. They're still important. We want to do the best. Yes. But we're able, I, at least I am, I'm able to overlook some of those mistakes that I make and say, <laughs> you know what, I have a bigger mission here. Right. And we accomplish that. And so if I did this or did that wrong along the way, oh, well, we accomplished this. And I, I think it's the only way to live because there's so much 
going on in our lives right now that we can keep beating ourselves up for. It's like, look at the big picture. What are you going for? And go there and keep improving. But as you were saying earlier, it's like, we just have to keep moving. You just can't beat yourself up. To give credit to Jennifer Romolini, whose book I'm reading right now, she talks about how we all have not just the things that we try and don't work, but we also have huge missteps, devastating mistakes. The time that I introduced a candidate for the presidency at the University of the Arts to the faculty and mispronounced his wife's name. Like those things that just make you cringe. And Like announcing the wrong Miss, Amer- Miss Universe. Right, like that in the wrong <laughs> like movie at the Oscars. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Um, and, and the issue isn't whether we do things whether we make mistakes. It's really how we recover from them, what we learn from them and how we march forward. And I think that was one of the huge gifts that art school gave me was that it imbued in me a sense that we're, it's an ongoing process and we keep learning and we keep trying again and let learn from it, but let it go. Don't keep it, don't let it become an obstacle to your trying again and to your growing. Yes. And that is as I said earlier, that is just huge, huge advice. And so as we're talking about those things of letting go, I want to go to, I'm done with that. <laughs> to talk about the things that we're done with. So this is my cranky, I'm done with. And usually I'm not cranky. And I want to preface this with, I having a child, a woman having a child and working is hard. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not telling women they should have children. They shouldn't have children. They should work. They shouldn't work. That's all your own decision. Everybody has to make their decision yes. for themselves. And the, I think a lot of workplaces don't support women with children. And that's not what this, what I'm going to say is about. <laughs> but I was on the phone with a woman who is highly educated with a great job, who has a child, a new child. And kept saying to me, I didn't know it would be this hard. And this is what I'm done with. Okay, I want to say it really loud to everyone. (laughs) Really loudly. (laughs) Having a full-time career and being responsible, even if you have a partner, Mm -hmm. being responsible for another human being is a big deal. It is. It's hard. (laughs) It's hard. Okay. So... Can we quit saying, I didn't know it would be this hard? And we're not, her workplace is great. It's very supportive. She's the one who has decided to go back to work after four weeks versus taking her maternity leave. They're not putting the pressure on her. This is She's all, putting it on herself. Yes. But to think that you weren't, this wasn't going to be hard. There's both a, um, a naivete and a little hubris. Right, right. That. It's like, did you think that there were going to be more hours in your day suddenly? Right. That you were already stressed out. And now you have a child, you're not going to be more stressed out. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm saying that's real. I mean, I, I was a single parent with a child. I get it. It, it is hard, but that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's hard. And there are some days it just all sucks. It's like, you don't do anything <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you don't, that's how you feel. Right. I'm not saying you don't, but some days you just feel I'm doing it wrong and that's okay. I mean, that's because you're not doing it all wrong. That's yourself feeling that, right? Yes. And we should all have children and work if we want you should have whatever you want. So that's not what I'm saying. It's the, it's the quit saying I'm how surprised and the are. illusion that it's going to be easy. Right. Look at it in on the flip side, which is that when we think about the building blocks, what are the shoes we're wearing out in the world? The things that matter to us most are it's our family and our primary relationships and it's our work in many cases in other people for other people it may be what they give to the community it may mm-hmm. be it, we all define it differently but for somebody who's trying to have a big career or even just work and have a family those are two core things they matter 
the things that matter aren't easy. Exactly. That's part of what makes them so meaningful. Right. And so I'm looking, I'm thinking, so how did you get all these degrees <laughs> and not realize that having a child would not make your life easier? Okay. <laughs> So, so anyway, that's my, that's my thing. That's my crankiness. I'm done with listening to, I didn't realize it would be this hard. So I'm saying it loud and clear to everyone. It's hard. Go yes. do it. It's worth it. It's worth, yes. I mean, and go as do it, one of my daughter's hard. preschool teachers said to me, um, the days will be long and the years are short. Yes. And that is so true. And it is hard to get through the days sometimes. Yes, it is. Even with a support system. Yeah. It's, and for it's, those of us who didn't always have one, I granted, I worked at great organizations who were enormously supportive, did my own single parenting, even though I didn't always parent alone because I live alone with my daughter. I'm divorced, but she does have a father right. who's present. So I, I, I go back and forth with what's the difference between single parenting and parenting okay. alone. Oh, that's a good one. And that how do we think about that as we're structuring our lives and our time right. and balancing Maybe there's a things. new term. It's not divided parenting because that's a negative, but there is that it's no. joint parenting, right. I guess, right? Yeah. We just don't do it under one right. roof. And so that there are many times where the burden of doing it alone is acute. And then there are other times where I have to recognize there is another adult in her life who loves her and cares for her and is engaged. Right. And for those of us who are control freaks as a, as a, as a divorced parent, <laughs> yes. that was sometimes hard for me to think that he could also do it as good as I could. Yes. And he could. <laughs> someday. Someday. <laughs> Not every day. No. no. Having that trust in how other people right. do things, that's another one of those lessons to learn right. And some people way. aren't worthy of the trust. I mean, there's that part. But if you have somebody who's worthy of the trust, you got to give up the control that only you can do it right. right. And also to recognize, and this is something, um, I have to give credit to Josh Levs, he talks about this a lot, is that um, what kids gain from having time with their fathers and letting, trust, respecting that fathers yes. can do things well, even though they do them differently, is as important to the kids and the fathers as it is to the moms yes. or the other yes. fathers that they're relieving. Right. And you can see kids light up when they're with the other parent that they're yes. not with as much, right? When yes. they, when they get together, because there's a, there's a different dynamic that goes on there. And for anybody going through that, I used to sometimes feel that why is Allie lighting up? And I'm really glad she did. You know, those were yes. moments of, for, that was, those were my own insecurities, you know, 20 some years ago, which are real that, and we all have them. Yeah. The thing that I'm done with are some of those insecurities, um, in particular about jumping into the conversation with ideas. Because as you can imagine, I, I go into every room and my brain's going, right. what about this and what about this and what about that? And for a long time, going back to that sense of propriety, I would be worried, um, particularly when I wasn't the most senior person in the room, about should I share that idea? Is it crazy? Is it too far-fetched? And I'm learning, also thanks to the team that I work with now, that actually my job is to be creative and strategic. And that's the thing that I hopefully can be counted on to bring to the table. And so I'm not going to be insecure about sharing those ideas. I'm going to try and be appropriate, productive, mm -hmm. polite, um, but to trust the inherent value of the ideas, recognizing that if I don't share them, they go nowhere. Right. And the value of you. So, and so sometimes I know if I'm with people who I think are smarter than me, that or they're more educated than I am, right? Mm -hmm. They have a different skill set than I do. And they're sharing their ideas. Sometimes I will think, I got to be quiet. I used to think this more than I do now, but it was like, 
my idea is not good enough. But I was giving away my power because I was putting my power in them, yes. right? By giving them the, they're smarter than me. And then one day what happened was when I was just... Yeah, it's like, I'm just going to give him my idea. I, mean, I came with, you know, a disclaimer. This is just off the top of my head. I haven't thought it through, you know. Right, all the apologies right. that women in particular will make before sharing an idea. Right, because that way, if you think it's stupid, I, I have my disclaimers out there. <laughs> right. I've already said it could be stupid. I've so, made myself right. smaller before <laughs> right. you ever exactly, hear my right. idea. Right, because that's really a productive thing to do. <laughs> so, but then everybody was like, that's like the best idea. Why didn't we think that? And I thought, because I bring real value. The reason why I'm a part of this organization is my value is different than their value. Yes. And there are some days they have better ideas than I do on some things. If it's in their wheelhouse, it's not in mine. Like if you want to ask me how to manufacture a coat, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Take it three I don't have a clue. So my, but I may have an idea right. from another discipline in my life that could help you figure that out. But I would demean my, I would diminish my idea because I was like, I'm not, over in that arena. I don't have that skill. Right. And um, as Adam Grant writes about in Originals, the most innovative teams are the ones that are bringing together diverse points of view and diverse ways of thinking. And so whether we're building teams or we're on that team, we want to make room for those different ideas. I do have to note as a caveat and out of respect for all the people that gave me opportunities early in my career, there's another side to that coin though which may have been why I overcompensated so much. Because <laughs> what'd you do? Well, it was that um, when I was early in my career and so excited and so hungry to go make an impact, I didn't always know when to hold it back and how to be a better listener and how to let the conversation unfold and hear what was going to present itself as a result. Um, one of the deans that I had the great privilege to work with, uh, Stephen Tarantel, uh, one of the wisest, kindest leaders I've ever been able to work with. He, I noticed after way too long that in almost every meeting, he was one of the last to speak. And when he did, he was able to honor the ideas that had been put forth bring to closure the questions that were hanging out there and direct the work that was going forward in a productive way. He didn't need to be powerful by controlling the conversation. His power actually came from how he enabled the work to move forward through his very gracious listening. Right. And that's a, that is a great talent. And every meeting needs a person that does that, right? Yes. Because you can end so many meetings with where we go. It's like we have great ideas, but everyone's heads are ready right. to explode. And also that the di so much work get, happens in meetings, if meetings are happening for the right reasons, that um, it's an invitation for a lot of power dynamics to emerge. And if we're not mindful of being kind, being humble, learning from each other, um, the power dynamics can get the best of anybody in the room. And so part of what Steve was doing was not just the practical issue of how do we make sure that we don't leave this room without knowing what we're going to do next. Meeting management. Right, right. It was something I thought very mature and sophisticated that was about honoring the perspectives in the room and, and really listening. listening. And through his modeling, 
encouraging other people to really listen. And because I was a slightly boisterous, caffeinated, you know, 24 year old at the time, um, it took me a little while to realize, to, to stop and listen and learn. Um, when I did, I think I became much more effective in those kinds of settings. Right. And I love how we just circled back to my dad and the white sports coat. <laughs> it was just listening to, yes. I want the white sports coat because, right. and it didn't have to make sense to me. So now we're going to do takeaways. We're going to answer questions that we've crowdsourced from our listeners. Okay. And one of them is, what do you think mentoring means? What does it mean to you? Okay. This is, um, I've had a growing relationship with the concept of mentoring. Um, When I started doing my needs analysis, one of the things that I kept hearing over and over again from the people that I was talking to was how much they wanted mentors. That if we could deliver mentors to them, that would just be the best. And as I was thinking about, yet they were telling me about mentoring programs that weren't working, that they had had mentoring programs with various organizations they belong to, mentoring programs in their companies, yet none of them were quite doing it for them. And when they described what they were looking for, I I couldn't help but think it sounded like the, the search for true love, that looking for a wise, kind, benevolent, loving person who understands you and accepts you with all your flaws, who's going to help guide you, protect you from yourself, and make the best of what's in front of you so that you can really get not just where you want to go, but places you can imagine. And some people are lucky enough to have those people come into their lives and those relationships present themselves. They are rarely, I'm not saying never, but they're rarely engineered. And you had asked me a question about my mentoring moments. And I was thinking about the people who tried to mentor me that I didn't realize they were trying to mentor me. Wonderful, mature women that I worked with early in my career who I didn't realize were trying to take me under wing. And I thought they were my colleagues and let's go debate things. And I didn't know how to listen to them. So that was on my side. I wasn't ready to receive that mentorship, which also meant that the chemistry in that relationship wasn't quite there. Yet somewhere along the way, I had to have learned something from someone aside from just banging my head into the wall over and over again. And I started to think about people like my drawing instructor and the moments where it was in the doing of something that I learned. And I have to give credit to Cheryl Sandberg. She was at Wharton talking with Adam Grant and somebody had asked her um, about, could, would she be their mentor? And in a very funny, but very sharp and insightful way, she was pointing out that, you know, time is limited. And if you just ask someone to be your mentor, what do you do for them? What do you make of that? Whereas when she's had people come to her and say, um, I have an idea for a project. I have a thing that might be useful. Can I have a shot? Would you like me to do this for you? Those become opportunities to mentor and not because you've put the mentorship t-shirt on somebody or they're wearing your Laura's my mentor baseball cap. It's because you get to work with them on something and you learn through the process of doing. So in the same way that Chris was mentoring me in how she was teaching me. The many women and outstanding men that I've worked for over the years, it was in giving me opportunities to work with them, take bringing me into the room on different projects and different conversations and letting me try and fail and pointing me in the right direction. That's where the, my mentoring came from. And I think it, as I go forward and I really committed 
to mentoring. Both, I always want to continue to be mentored, but hopefully I'm in a stage in my life where I have something mm-hmm. to give back. Um, I'm trying to take that impulse and focus it on what can we do collaboratively? Where can we do work that matters to you, that matters to me so that I understand it and can bring something meaningful to it? And it's in that, it's in the process that we learn. Yes. I, I, Laura, I, I love, love, love this because I tell this to everyone all the time because just like you, you're asked to be, you know, people email me, I'm so-and-so, will you mentor me? Well, the answer is no. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know you. Okay. But, and that's not a good way to go about getting a mentor. Okay? It's like, you know, I'm so-and-so, really, it's like, I'm so-and-so, I'm eight X years old, and I'd love for you to be my mentor. Well, you know, I really wanted that new coat I just saw yesterday. <laughs> right, and I want to be 5'10". I want to be 5'10", exactly. How did you know that? But that ain't happening. But the women who write to me with, you know, I was listening to your podcast, and I thought, do you know so-and-so? She could be a great mm-hmm. guest. And here's why. It's, the, it's not just even like throwing out a friend or whatever. Right. But they've shown that they've listened to what I do, mm-hmm. that they're thinking about how to make it better from their view of how to make it better. And that usually opens the dialogue yes. because they've given me something of value. And I, I agree. When you start working together, that's where I learn the most. Right. Yes. As well, because I'm learning from them because we're now working on a project together versus just sitting in some room talking about the problems of life that we're, it's the process. Yes. It's the process. And when, um, I've heard particularly women talk about rewarding mentorship relationships where they are the mentors, they report that they're learning as much from the mentee as the mentee is learning from them. And that's because it becomes a relationship and, yes. a coll- and, and the relationship centers on a collaborative effort. Yes. I tell this one of the women that I mentor is Tammy Tibbetts. She is the co-founder of She's the First, an organization that we raise, um, we give scholarships to girls who are less fortunate so they can be the first in their families to graduate high school, as well as we develop leaders here in the United States and around the world. And she has been a mentor to me in so many ways. So many of the great women I know have come from Tammy. Mm. That's amazing. Right, because she's able to draw women into her because people want to help her, right? So wonderful women with the right intention are in her network. And so I've, I've met some of the most wonderful human beings because of Tammy. So when people think that it's always the young person saying, you know, let me into your network, right. I cite her all the time as, I got to tell you, half the women on this show <laughs> came from Tammy, okay, <laughs> in right. some way, shape, or form. Which is also a nod to other dimensions of how we learn from each other and how we advance each other that I think we mistakenly assign the label of mentor to. Yes. Because one of them is also being a coach, which is something different. And there is coaching that happens both in organizations as formal systems, and they can be invaluable um, of somebody to show you the ropes, help you understand the organization, navigate your next steps. And it's not, it's not true love. It's not that magical, benevolent, deeply knowing relationship, yet there's important institutional knowledge that you can convey to somebody coming up in the ranks. And um, it can be a very powerful way of helping particularly underrepresented members of an organization Mm -hmm. be retained and be successful because you're decoding the organization for them. That's different than mentoring. And then there's sponsorship. Yes. 
And where do, how can we find people who will help give us opportunities and point us in the right direction? And when can we do that for other people? It sounds like she's, in a way, it's a form of sponsorship. It is, in a way, yes. That she's helping connect you with people in a way that's going to be meaningful for advancing your work and right. also theirs. And it's, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful relationship that we have. It's, it's truly mutual. So we could go on, I could go on with you forever. <laughs> so people are going to have to listen to you on your show. after yes. that. So tell us where we can find you. Um, we broadcast live on Wednesdays on Sirius XM 111. You can also uh, find my sound files on soundcloud.com. Just Google Laura's Arrow and Women at Work and on business radio at SiriusXM.com. business radio powered by the Wharton School. Uh, you can go to our website and find not only my shows, but the other 39 shows that are on business radio, which are all really excellent, exciting ways to learn about life in the business world. Thank you. And I will say your show is wonderful. Thank Thank you. you. Holding your hand. Thank Thank you you. so much. Thanks for joining us today. And to get Mentoring Moments the moment it's live, which is every Wednesday, remember to download new episodes on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or podcastone.com and make sure to rate, review, and share. So I like to leave with those three thoughts that I got from the conversation. And with Laura, it is so hard because there were so, so many great thoughts. So I'm going to bring it down to the three thoughts that are meaningful to me in the moment right now. Number one, starting over. I mean, the art teacher story, how to start over versus correcting. I look back and I think about how that advice would have helped me so, so much when I stayed too long at a job. And that would have been USA Today as one of the many jobs I stayed too long at. And not because it was bad. I just needed to get out. But I stayed too long. I kept trying to correct. Correct me and correct what was around me. And the times that I've stayed in a relationship too long, sometimes you just need to start over. And then when Laura was talking about what she's done with, that was one of those, oh my God moments for me, because I am so guilty of this. Not as much as I used to be, but I still am guilty of it. Thinking that people are smarter than me. And so I'll think, ooh, I don't want to give my idea because they'll, you know, it might not be as good as their idea. And what I have learned time and time again is my ideas are sometimes brilliant Sometimes they're good, but people do want to hear them. No one has all the answers. And when I do that, I'm giving away my power. And I don't want to do that anymore. And I do love her daughter's preschool teacher's words of wisdom, because as a parent of a 24-year-old, I can tell you how true this is. When her teacher told her, the days will be long and the years are short. So check out my show notes on Forbes.com and talk to me. I'm so easy to find. I'm always on Twitter at Denise Ristari. Until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, Forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. 
I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And we're the hosts of The Limit Does Not Exist, a podcast for human Venn diagrams. That's right. We talk to people with intersecting interests in the arts, STEM, entrepreneurship, and so much more. The easiest way to explain science to non-scientists is to use art. I worry that we lose a lot of creative engineers because our engineering curriculum is not creative. Education should be about empowering people to become better thinkers, good problem solvers, creative inventors, and ethical caring citizens. Download new episodes of The Limit Does Not Exist every Monday on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. Your home is important. That's why GEICO helps make it easy to save on homeowner's insurance. Because home is more than just a place. Home is where you have a cute little reading nook for those rainy days when you want to curl up with a good book, but you don't even read, so you just sit in there during thunderstorms and scroll through memes on your phone and laugh in the darkness. <laughs> the GEICO Insurance Agency could help protect the dark, meme-filled corner you call home. Call GEICO and see how easy it is to switch and save on homeowner's insurance. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower... It does not appear to be following following the rule of law is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.